0: Down through verse number 25 to begin with, and we'll back up to verse 1 uh, when we get to the outline. Isaiah 45 and verse number 22. Once you've found that, you're welcome to stand for the reading of God's Word. 22 down through 25. All right. It says, beginning in 22, Look unto me and be ye saved. "...all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else." Look who the invitation's to. It's not just to the Jews. It's not just to a handful of selected people. It's to all the ends of the earth. 23, "...I have sworn by myself the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear." Surely shall one say, In the Lord have I righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified, and shall glory. The title of our Bible study for this week and probably next is found right there in our passage. It's Every Knee and Every Tongue. Every knee and every tongue. And you're... (laughs) Listen, you're either going to bow the, bow the knee on your own or you're going to bow the knee. Uh, you're, either going to do it, you're either going to voluntarily do it or you're going to be forced to do it. But every knee is going to bow and proclaim that God, Jesus, is Lord and that God is holy and that God is the Creator and King. Uh, every tongue will either confess voluntarily or by force that He is our Lord, our Redeemer, our King. And so let's pray tonight. God, help us. As we look into a very neat and exciting passage, help us as we consider the truths uh, here in this chapter, and Lord, um, uh, help us to leave here encouraged through the Bible study and and, and challenged to do right. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Let's see here. Um, Pastor Andrew, on that back seat are some timelines, and I don't need them passed out yet, but if you just have those ready, and when I give you the... The cue there, if you could pass those out. Every knee and every tongue. All right. Um, the idea here is having a submissive heart and a submissive mouth with the Lord, and not being arrogant and stuck up and not being proud. The word here, uh, the uh, the the opposite or the antonym of being submissive is being rebellious, and rebellion lives in the heart of everyone. Everyone. There's a little rebel that lives inside of every person, including me and you. Rebellion lives in everyone's heart. None of us want to submit ourselves to authority. None of us. Nobody wants to do what they're told on their own. Now, you may be spiritual enough to where you do submit to authority, but it's not in your nature to do that. Your nature wants to buck and resist and push. All of us want to hold in our hand the right to make the final decision. I will decide for me what's best for me, and I don't want anybody telling me what to do. And that rebel lives inside of all of our hearts. It's just there. It just is. And throughout Scripture, we're given, uh, we're given authority figures that are laid out in And uh, in Scripture, and they're God-given authority figures. And you know what? When you have God-given authority in your life, it is your part to submit. Now, there are many reasons that people give as to why they do not submit to authority. Many reasons people give. You know what I call these? I call these excuses. Excuses as to why people don't submit. We all look for them. okay? And some of these excuses sound really good. Let me give you a few of the excuses I scribbled down. This, in no way is this a complete list, all right? Uh, there are many reasons people give for not submitting. Here's the first one I wrote down. Because authority is flawed, I, they do not deserve my obedience. Because authority is flawed, they do not deserve my obedience, my submission. You know what, I'd submit, but they don't deserve me to submit because they're flawed. And I just say, whoa, hold on on that thought. Because probably you also have some form of God-given authority. And I would ask you a question. Are you perfect? Should the people that God has ordered to submit to you still submit even though you aren't perfect? Well, then maybe you should submit even though the people above you also are not perfect. All right? Well, I see this, that, and the other. And you know what? People who don't want to obey authority, you know what they do? They seek to discredit authority. That's what they do. They seek to discredit authority. And you know how they do it? They find either perceived flaws or they find real flaws, and they harp on them, and they point them out, and they, they, they uh, enunciate them, they talk about them. You know, uh, to be human is to be flawed. But yet God chooses humans to be leaders. And God chooses humans and He gives them authority. And so watch this now. If my standard to not submit to authority is that authority has to be perfect or I will not submit, then I'm never going to submit to authority. Why, what are some of the excuses people give for not wanting to submit to authority? Well, They say, because authority is flawed, they do not deserve my obedience. Here's another one. An authority figure in my past took advantage of me, so I can't and won't trust any authority moving forward. I was taken advantage of by authority. Maybe you were abused. And I'm not talking about any one particular type of abuse. All right? I find that word abuse, it gets thrown around quite loosely. There is real abuse that happens from authority. I'm not pretending that doesn't exist. There's sexual abuse, there's physical abuse, there's emotional abuse, and there's mental abuse. But I will say this: I think the word abuse, just like the word bully, is highly overused in our culture today. All right, somebody looks at you funny. Somebody looks at your kid funny in school. Uh, My kid got bullied. Well, hold on on the word bully. All right. Hold on on the word abuse. All right. There's real cases of being bullied and there's real cases of abuse. Let's not just label anything that we don't like as abuse or bully. You know what? Uh, there are people who will leave a church or they'll, um, they'll run away from home or uh, they'll quit a job and they say, I was mistreated by... Well, how about you look in the mirror for a minute? Were you a little bit difficult to lead? All right. By the way, if you were truly abused by authority. Isn't it lazy to just assume that all authority is not worthy of being followed because an authority in the past took advantage of their power? Okay? How, how, how's, how are we supposed to have a functioning society if no one is willing to submit to the authority above them based on something someone else did? Should I be punished for something that someone else did to you? People say, well, I won't go to church anymore because... Uh, 30 years ago, I went to church and a pastor was corrupt and he took advantage of somebody and it may have even been them. So now all of a sudden, I'm held accountable for something another pastor did 30 years ago when I was just a child myself. Now, hold on a minute. That does not hold any water, but yet people act this way. I'm not going to submit because something someone else did to me another time. Here's another one, another excuse people give. I don't need someone telling me what to do because I know what's best for myself. I don't need someone else telling me what to do because I know what's best for myself and my future. Why would I listen to you when I know what's best for me? uh, I'm amazed at how easily deceived all of us are. I, sometimes when I've got time to kill, I'll sit on the couch with my kids and we'll watch YouTube, all right? And uh, that's what the young kids do today, all right? They don't watch regular scheduled programming. They pick and pick their program. One of the things I like to watch with my kids is uh, uh, illusions, magic tricks, all right? And I like to see a card trick or a coin trick. Or uh, someone is here and they disappear and they show up over here. Or maybe they're wearing an outfit and they'll pull something down. All of a sudden they're wearing a completely different outfit. And and, and it blows me away. It's amazing. And You know, what I have come to realize by watching these magic trick shows, these illusions, is that it's just simply sleight of hand, but they're so good at it that my eyes tell me one thing that's just not true. If I can be deceived that easy, then... Who am I to think that I know what's best for myself in life? Don't you think that Satan is capable of pulling the wool over your eyes? And don't you think it'd be a lot smarter for you to surround yourself with authority that can help guide you and protect you and get you to where you ought to be? Now, what happens when we rebel against God's God-given authority? There's a lot of directions we could go with that question. What happens when we rebel against our God-given authority? Here's a very simple answer, all right? Here's a very simple answer to that question. When we rebel against God-given authority, watch this. We rebel against God. We rebel against God. When children do not obey their parents, it is not just the parents they're disobeying, it is God they're disobeying. And by the way, moms and dads, you are not very wise to punish your children for disobedience without pointing that out to them. Anytime my children are disrespectful to me or their mother, or they lie or they disobey, we make it very clear. You did not just lie or disobey against us. You disobeyed the Lord because it's His system that you're violating. When you take the Word of God that's preached by your pastor and you go forth and do the opposite... It's not just the pastor you're rebelling against. It's God you're rebelling against. Wives, you've been called to submit to your husbands. I'm not here to argue the the, the fact of that. It's right there on the pages of the Bible. You are to follow your husband's lead. And when you don't do it, it isn't just your husband that you're bucking against. It's the God of heaven and His system. Your bucking gifts. Yeah, but my husband, this. Yeah, but my husband, that. Yeah, but my husband's flawed. Yeah, but my husband's not perfect. Hold on. Whoa, just a second here. Neither are you, ma'am. And it isn't just your husband, it's the God of heaven. You have to understand that when we rebel against our God given authority that is telling us something to do that does not violate Scripture, it isn't just that person. It's God in heaven that we're rebelling against. Now, the Lord has earned the right for you and I to submit to him and the authorities that he has placed in our life. Now, write this down. Write this down. Submission is always a matter of the heart. Submission is always a matter of the heart. You can sit here and say, I would submit if this person would change this, that, or the other. That's not true. Submission is not about how good the leader is. Submission is about how good of a follower you are. It is a matter of your heart. And if you're not submitting, quit pointing the finger at the leader and start pointing the finger at yourself. Submission is a matter of the heart. Write this down. Submission is a lifestyle choice. Submission is a lifestyle choice. You either choose to follow your God-given leadership or you don't. Just that simple. I won't say any names. I'll be um, vague on purpose. There's a, uh, a person I did a funeral for probably five years ago. And that individual was in a marriage for 50-plus years. That was just a nightmare marriage. Husband drunk, came home and yell and scream and holler, They'd leave work, go to the bar, get drunk, stay out all night, come home, 10, 11 o'clock. And you know what the wife would do? Have dinner ready, serve it up, put it there, would absorb the yelling and the screaming and the nasty words, would make excuses for him, would feed him, would stay up and wash the dishes, and then go to bed with him. Fifty years. That man, at the end of his life, he repented and he got saved and he gave his heart to Jesus. You know why she was able to do that? Because for her, submission was not about her husband. Submission was about her. For her, submission was a lifestyle choice. And God used her meek and quiet spirit to see her husband get saved and see her husband repent and confess all of the wrong he had done. What is submission? It is a realization that I am to follow others as long as they are in alignment with God. I am to follow others as long as they're in alignment with God. Now, if you're submitting to a husband and he's telling you to uh, be involved in some sin, or you're following a pastor and the pastor's leading you into some sort of weird anti-biblical behavior, or you're following a boss and he's ordering you to... Uh, to, to steal, uh, something for the company. Uh, that is not biblical submission, but as long as that leader is not ordering you to violate the higher authority in God, submission is a realization that I follow you as long as you don't push me away from my biblical, uh, the biblical authority or the God of the Bible. Submission is the bowing of the knee and the proclaiming of the tongue that God is in control of my heart and my actions. If, um, and By the way, can I just add this here? It's not hard to submit when you want to do what you've been told. Alright? I go home and say to my daughter, eat ice cream right now! You know what she's going to do? Yes, sir! Where, where is it? Let's get it! Let's do it! If I go home and say to my daughter, get in there and clean your bedroom right now, and I'm coming in with a white glove, I better not find a speck of dust. She's not going to like that. She's just not. But you know what? Submission is not obeying or following when you want to. It's obeying and following when you don't want to. That's the true test of submission. Is can I say no to my flesh, and can I say yes to God? Because ultimately, He's the one who you're submitting to. Now, Look back with me at Isaiah 45. And look with me at verse 23. I have sworn by myself the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. That unto me, look here, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. There's going to be a day, you can hold the right to be your own authority and make the final call. That's rebellion, okay? I'm not, I'm gonna rebel, buck against uh, others having the right to tell me what to do, and I'm gonna hold the right to decide what I wanna do. And that's fine and dandy, but listen, what you're doing when you do that is you're refusing to bow the knee to the God in heaven who is the supreme authority. That's fine, but one day you're gonna be forced to bow the knee, and one day you're going to be forced to swear with your tongue that God is your Master, and you will submit to him. Now, at the writing of Isaiah 45, Judah was still sovereign; they had not been taken into captivity. They were still um, they were still their own nation, but they were a state. They were in a state of rebellion; they were rebelling against God, but yet had not realized the full punishment of that. Throughout this chapter, God shows us that not only do Israeli kings bow the knee but so do Gentile kings. So one day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, Philippians 2. Let's jump right in this evening and let's look at this idea of every knee and every tongue as we consider Isaiah 45. Let's jump right into these four thoughts. All right, number one, notice the promise of Cyrus foretold. The promise of Cyrus foretold. Let's go ahead and begin to pass out those uh, outlines. And if there's another man or two that could hop up and help Pastor Andrew that, that'd be great. Um, the promise of Cyrus foretold. Look at me at chapter 44, while those are being distributed. 44, and look at verse 28, okay? The Bible says, Thus saith of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built into the temple, thy foundation shall be laid, shall be laid, okay? Uh, let's get these passed out, then we'll get back into the passage. By the way, don't, don't hyper-focus on that yet. Let me lead you into what, what we look at. You'll have all the time after service to study it and look at it all you want. But for now, let's look, let me have one of those if I can. Let's look at the passage itself, okay? And we'll come back and look at this in just a minute. So tuck that away for just a minute. Look with me at the passage, okay? Again, chapter 44, look at verse 28, all right? We're going to read through chapter 45, uh, verse number 8, okay? So we're going to read down nine verses, beginning in 28. Look here. Thus saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, "...whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him, and I will loosen the loins of kings to open before him the two uh, leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron, and I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name... "...am the God of Israel. For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, uh, thou, uh, the, the, though thou hast not known me, I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me, I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. That they may know that the rising of the sun from the west, that there is none beside me, I am the Lord, and there is none else." I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Drop down, ye heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open and let them bring forth salvation, and let the righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. So we see the promise of Cyrus foretold, okay? Uh, Let's see here. Take this timeline out with me. And let's look at this together, all right? And this is a neat uh, timeline. I found this some years ago, and I have passed this out in here before, uh, back toward the beginning of the book of Isaiah, probably a year and a half ago. But let's look at it again here, okay? Find Isaiah on the map. He's on the top half uh, toward the uh, end of the right. If you see where it says Assyrian captivity, look down below that, and you see the names Micah and Isaiah. He's got a blue and green stripe around his name, okay? You see that Isaiah lived from the era of Uzziah, Jotham, up through the end of Hezekiah, or near the end of Hezekiah. If you look above that, you see the other kings in red, okay? So he also lived during the reign of uh, Sennacherib, for instance. All right, now look over down below on the next. So that goes through 680 B.C., and the way the calendar worked back then is we count down toward the birth of Christ. So the higher the number, the further away from Christ you are, okay? And so look down, um, let's see, look down where it says Manasseh and Josiah. You see that down there? And keep looking to the right, and you get to where it says temple destroyed. And then you keep moving over, it says Zerubbabel. If you look up from Zerubbabel, you see the name Cyrus in red, right below 550, okay? So look where Isaiah lived. He lived uh, during the time 740 to about 690, and um, let's see, Cyrus reigned from 550 to 520. So Cyrus had not even yet been born when Isaiah wrote this passage. In fact, Isaiah wrote this passage 180 years before Cyrus had even been born, and Isaiah gives us his name and tells us what he's going to do. Now, I'm going to blow your mind even further, okay? The Babylonian Empire was not even a thing when Isaiah wrote this passage. The Babylonian Empire, Babylon was just this little tiny city that had no power. And Isaiah prophesied that Babylon would become a great empire and would carry Israel away into captivity And they would stay in captivity until Cyrus came along and let them out. He prophesied this 180 years before it happened and put it in writing. Now, there were those who said, well, I mean, come on now. There's more than one man named Isaiah in the Bible. How do we know that a different Isaiah didn't write this, you know, after the captivity had happened and that this just got modged podged together? And liberal theologians believe that until there was an archaeological find in the Dead Sea region in a cave, and we call those the Dead Sea Scrolls. And you know what the Dead Sea Scrolls proved? The Dead Sea Scrolls proved that the same Isaiah that wrote Isaiah 1 1 also wrote Isaiah 45, 46, and 47. It was the same guy who was dead, buried, and gone by the time Cyrus was born, and yet God used and prophesied, used Isaiah to prophesy that he would come and that he, would, uh, that, that he would deliver Israel from captivity. So what do we see here? We see God flexing. We see God saying, I'm going to show you how strong I am. I'm going to name the man who's going to deliver my people from a nation who's not even a real nation yet, uh, from an empire that's not even an empire yet. Now, turn over to Daniel chapter 7 with me in verse number 5. Isaiah was not the only one to prophesy, Of this. In fact, Daniel would also prophesy uh, of this very thing. And Daniel would give us even more details. In Daniel 7, you find four beasts, and these four beasts represent the four great kingdoms that would rise uh, and rule. And the first beast is a lion that has the wings of eagles, and that is symbolic of the Babylonian Empire. And uh, then you get to this second beast in. Daniel chapter 7, verse 5. All right? Look there. The Bible says in verse 5, And behold, another beast, a second like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side. Look here. It had three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth of it. And they said, Thus unto it arise, devour much flesh. So this second beast is a bear, That has three bloody ribs in its mouth. That means this bear has devoured three kingdoms. Anybody want to guess how many kingdoms Cyrus overthrew in his reign? Exactly three. He overthrew the Lydian Empire. He overthrew the Chaldean Empire. And he and his son collectively, now Cyrus died in war doing it, but his son would conquer the Egyptian Empire. Three ribs in the mouth of the bear. Three nations that the Medo-Persian Empire under Cyrus and his son overthrew. And God prophesied this of Daniel before it would take place. He prophesied it of Isaiah 180 years before it would take place. Letter A, we see God's shepherd. God's shepherd. Go back to Isaiah chapter 44 and look at verse number 6. Isaiah 44, look at verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, I'm going to begin reading for sake of time. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Now, I think it's amazing that we have a prophecy 180 years prior to that came to being. I think that's amazing right? And if someone wants to say, well, the Bible is just a book of fairy tales, or the Bible was written by man, or uh, the Bible is just made up, no, hold on. There are historical records that prove out that Isaiah lived 180 years before Cyrus, and there are historical records that prove that Cyrus did indeed set the Jews free and send them back to Israel just as the Bible prophesied. And so if you need faith, All right, you say, well, I need help to have faith. This is a great bit of help right here to show you that maybe the Bible isn't fairy tales, and maybe the Bible isn't just made up. Maybe there is some validity to there being a God in heaven that wrote the Bible. Furthermore, we see here that Cyrus is a Gentile, not a Jew. He's a Gentile leader, but God calls him a shepherd. Look at chapter 45 and look at the beginning in verse 13. 45 and look at verse 13. And here we're given a little bit more specifics by Isaiah as to what this shepherd Cyrus would do. He, the, uh, God says, "I have raised him." Speaking of Cyrus, "I have raised him up in righteousness, and I will direct." Just as a shepherd, I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city. He shall build my city. He shall let go my captives, not for price nor reward, saith the Lord of hosts. So uh, we see here that he's going to be a shepherd. For God's people. Now, in all my study of this, I found something very fascinating. Okay? Cyrus, uh, there would be a book written about Cyrus's uh, political leadership style, and that book was written by Josephus, the same historian that recorded about Jesus raising from the dead, and uh, that would get so much clout and become such a popular book that Thomas Jefferson would own three copies of the book about how Cyrus ruled. And that played a great amount of influence in how the United States was developed as a country to let so much diversity be in one place and yet let that diversity be without trying to make everyone fit into one mold because that was his style. That was Cyrus's style. So Cyrus's leadership is even played down into the development of the United States of America. Uh, God's shepherd, letter B, we see God's anointed, God's anointed. Look back at uh, chapter 45, and look back at verse number 1. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. Now, it's interesting. Cyrus is the only non-Jew king to, where the Bible says he was anointed. You know what this shows us? That God does not only put, pick, uh, lift up and put down Jewish leaders. God lifts up and puts down all leaders. The Lord God of Heaven, He is the one. He's the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Prime Minister of Prime Ministers, the President of Presidents, the political of all politicals. And you know what? He is the one that lifts up and puts down and lifts up. And puts down. You say, well, this particular politician, I don't like this about him or her. And I don't like, I didn't vote for this one. And I get all that. We have a system and I think you should go vote. And I believe you should vote your biblical conscience. But at the end of the day, God is going to lift up and put down whom he so chooses. And it's not on us to question it. It's on us to accept that. God's anointed. Now, what does Proverbs 21 verse 1 say? It says, you're familiar with it. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. I don't like the decision that former President Trump made, or I don't like the decision that current President Biden makes. Hold on a minute. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. God has a purpose in all of it. Go back to chapter 45 and look with me at verse number 13 again. I have raised him up in his righteousness. I will direct all his ways. Here we see him being anointed, Cyrus, He shall build my city, wow, and shall let go my captives, nor for price nor reward, saith the Lord of hosts. By the way, we have no uh, belief, reason to believe that Cyrus ever got saved. None whatsoever. In fact, there was a cylinder found, a circular piece of clay, that Cyrus himself had inscribed. And today I went and I read the entire cylinder. And you know what I found? I found that Cyrus was a very pagan man. I did not find Cyrus to be a believer. But you know what? Cyrus didn't need to be a believer for God to use him to send his people back and build his city. Because that's exactly what Cyrus did. God can use any politician anytime he wants to do anything he wants. Cyrus was God's anointed. We see the promise of Cyrus foretold. Let's look at number two, the prophecy of Cyrus fulfilled. Let's see actual scripture that was written uh, some 200 years later, that lays out for us exactly the fulfillment of the prophecy written prior to his birth. Letter A, we see his emancipation of the Jews. His emancipation of the Jews. Go over with me to Second Chronicles chapter 36. Look with me at the last two verses of the book of Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles 36 and verse number 22. Verse number 22, and then we're going to look at Ezra, which is just one page over Depending on how your Bible's laid out, okay. Second Chronicles thirty-six. Look with me at verse number twenty-two. So we see Isaiah foretelling. All right, he's promising that one day a man named Cyrus will be born, and he'll be God's shepherd. He'll be God's anointed. He's going to uh, he's going to make sure uh, that uh, uh, that Israel is released and set free, and the foundation is rebuilt. And lo and behold. Uh, we, now we read text that is telling us that these things, these things came to pass, and the foretelling of it, and then the uh, history uh, writing of it. Look at 36, look at verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished. Now let me just answer a quick seeming discretion here. All right? You said, I thought it was Isaiah, not Jeremiah. All right, here's, here's what I believe. Go back to your timeline. Okay, Go back to your timeline with me. You see Isaiah. Now find Jeremiah. He's down below. Uh, Jeremiah lived about 100 years after Isaiah. And Jeremiah was around Okay, when um, uh, Israel was carried into captivity and when the temple was destroyed. Notice back there in verse 22, it says the mouth of Jeremiah. Why would it have said the mouth of Jeremiah? Because Jeremiah would have had a copy of... Of Isaiah's writings, and Jeremiah would have said with his mouth what Isaiah would have written down. It does not say by the hand of Jeremiah or the writing of Jeremiah, because you can't find any writing about Cyrus in Jeremiah's. Uh, writings. But Jeremiah no doubt spoke of Isaiah's prophecy and so we get the credit here given to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is simply sharing what Isaiah had written. Go back to 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken, see there spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah, might be accomplished. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing saying, thus saith Cyrus king of Persia. All the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me. Uh, And he hath charged me to build him an house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? The Lord his God be with him and let him go. And so here we have the fulfillment that, uh, lo and behold, Cyrus would take over the empire and he would set them free. Do you all know how he took over the empire do you remember the story of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's son? Let's see here. His name is, is right here on here. Let me, look at that, let me look at it really quick. Nebuchadnezzar. Behind Nebuchadnezzar we have, here it is, Belshazzar. That's it. You remember Belshazzar? He's uh, eating off the plates from the temple that had been stored in Babylon. And all of a sudden that hand appeared and wrote on the wall, Right? And uh, you have been found in the balance and and are wanting. And and everyone was afraid. And they called in Daniel. And Daniel translated it. And Daniel said, this night you're going to lose the kingdom. And how did he lose it? Well, Cyrus uh, happened to cut off the water source and came in under the wall in the water duct uh, and surprise attack and conquered the city. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of getting off track a little bit here, but I, I just want to share this with you. So, excuse me for being unscripted for a minute. Go back to chapter 45 in Isaiah 45. Hold your place there in Second Chronicles. And so not only did God prophesy through Isaiah that Cyrus would rule, but he also prophesied how he would take over. The detail 180 years prior is astounding, okay? Look at verse number 1. Thus saith the Lord, to his anointed Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him, I will loose the loins of kings, look here, to open before him the two leaved gates, that's the water gates, and the gates shall not be shut. He not only prophesies that Cyrus is going to take over, he tells us how Cyrus is going to take over, how he's going to come in and overthrow Babylon almost 200 years prior. That would be like me standing here right now and writing a prophecy about a president the U.S. will have 180 years from now and telling you what his name will be and writing what the circumstances will be and tell you exactly what he's going to do? You would say, yeah, no way. Okay? There's only one way that's possible, and that's that God is in our tomorrows, and he would tell me exactly what's right. God doesn't work that way anymore, but he sure did during Isaiah's day. So we see the emancipation of the Jews. He comes in, and what does he do? The very first thing he does is he says to the Israelites, take your things and go back to Jerusalem and rebuild your city. So we see his emancipation of the Jews. Letter B, we see his edict to rebuild the temple. Look with me at Ezra chapter 1. Just one page over there from Second Chronicles. Ezra chapter 1 and look with me at verse number 7. And Cyrus the king brought forth the vessels of the house of the Lord which Nebuchadnezzar had brought forth out of Jerusalem and had put them in the house of his gods. Now, real quick here, time, uh, time out, history lesson. And uh, let's see, um, 586, was it uh, 586, I believe? Yes, 586 B.C., uh, um, Solomon's temple was totally destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. It was blown up. And this was done prior to Isaiah. So not only did Isaiah prophesy that Cyrus would would deliver the Jews from a, a, a country that had not yet even come to power, or an empire that had not yet come to power. Not only did he prophesy that they would be sent back, he also prophesied that the temple uh, that was standing in, in, in great condition would be destroyed and that it would be rebuilt. It's just amazing. Look at verse 7 of Ezra 1. And Cyrus the king brought forth the vessels out of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar brought forth out of Jerusalem and put them in the house of his gods. "...even those did Cyrus, king of Persia, bring forth by the hand of uh, Mid-Radath the treasurer, and numbered them unto shesh Bazar, the prince of Judah. And this is the number of them, thirty chargers of gold, a thousand chargers uh, char- of silver, nine and twenty knives." 30 bases of gold, silver basins of a second sort, 410, and other vessels, a 1,000, and the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Shesh Bazar bring up with them out of the captivity that were brought up from Babylon unto Jerusalem. Turn over to chapter 6. And verse number 3, Ezra chapter 6. So all of this silverware, all of these utensils that were made of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away and kept in storage, Cyrus returns them back and sends the Israelites back to rebuild their city. But not only did he free them to do it, he's going to finance it. Look at chapter 6, verse 3. In the first year of Cyrus, the king, the same Cyrus, uh, the king made a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem that let the house be builded, the place where they offered sacrifice, and let the foundation thereof be strongly laid, the height thereof three score cubits, and breadth thereof three square cubits, with three rows of great stones, and a row of new timber, and let the expenses be given out of the king's house. Not only am I commanding you to build it, I'm going to pay for it, he says, verse five, and also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took forth out of the temple which is at Jerusalem, and brought unto Babylon be restored, and brought again unto the temple which is at Jerusalem, every one to his peace, and place them in the house of God. Wow, that's amazing. God said to, through Cyrus, he said, not only am I going to send my people home, I'm going to pay to have it all restored. I'm going to have Cyrus pay to have it all restored. Now, Cyrus would die in battle and everything would be put on hold under the next king. And then eventually Artaxerxes would come in. And then they would petition, and um, Ezra would stand up along with uh, Haggai, and they would preach, and they would rebuild the temple, okay? And they would finish what they started. But the foundation was laid under Cyrus, and they were sent back under Cyrus. And so we see the promise, uh, the prophecy of Cyrus fulfilled, all right? We're going to get into number three and number four next week, and we're going to talk about how that God uses this. Now, here's what I want to get at, okay? I'm going to just bring it all to a close here. With this, Cyrus, while not a godly man, God still moved him and used him to do what he wanted. Are you someone who does what God wants voluntarily or does God have to manipulate you and push you around through other uh, sources to get get you to do what he wants you to do? You see, God is greater than me and you. And God is going to get done with you what he wants with your life. Don't fight the process. Boy, it sure is a lot better if you just submit and follow God's plan. You just do it God's way. You know what? I would rather get to heaven and say, God, I was submissive to you. I was submissive to the authorities that you put in my life. And as a result, I got to go along with and enjoy the process of you building your kingdom. Then to get to heaven and find out that I was bullheaded and stubborn, and God had to do all sorts of things to work around me, to use me to build His kingdom, and I didn't get to enjoy any of the process, that little rebel that lives in your heart and that lives in my heart, let's put him away. Let's submit to the Lord. Let's submit to God-given authority. Let's be that of a meek and quiet spirit. And that verse does not just apply to ladies. That should apply to all of us. May all of us follow the Lord and be godly in the way we live and how we submit to those he puts in front of us. Let's stand together. Every knee and every tongue. Let's have Knees that bow regularly. And let's have tongues that confess the glory of God the Father. Amen.